Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we will be continuing in our series, which is entitled, Jesus, the Savior of the World. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus, the forgiver of sin. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 1, 57 to 80. Um, I decided this week, after uh, last week, when it took about 10 minutes to read our passage, that I was going to switch it out and read it in a scripture reading. So you've already heard uh, the, the passage that we're going to be reading. Now, imagine with me trying to take something away from someone who was stronger than you. You couldn't do it. In order to take it, you would have to first weaken them in order to remove their power so that you could take it from them. I mean, you've probably, maybe as growing up, experienced a bully and you tried to take something away and you couldn't get it out of their hand. Our sin, those things that we have done, the things that we have continued to do, is stronger than us. We cannot defeat sin and its effects upon us unless there is one who is stronger than that sin. And that one, that strong man, is Jesus. Jesus, the one who first removes the power of sin. This is what Jesus came to earth to do. This is what we're going to see in today's passage. That Jesus is the forgiver of sin because he has conquered it through his power. I want to read a small portion of our passage that, I, that is the focus, the primary focus and then I'll pray, and then we'll do a little, give a little background of where we're at. In verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he goes on and he speaks of um, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said, let me pray. Father, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you allow us to see your word? Would you allow the words that I give here be your words and your words alone? And would these words bring comfort and joy and draw your people into worship so that we might see you more clearly, Lord Jesus? And we ask that you would be with us now through your spirit. Through Christ we pray, amen. So, the last bit of prophecy that the Israelites had heard was 400 years ago by the prophet Malachi. Israel was no longer a political power. They had no true king. They had all their hope was lost. The promises of God to always have a man ruling on the throne who was a descendant of King David seemed like they were long gone and lost. But then Malachi said, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, 
over 400 years later, suddenly the prophetic voice has begun to speak. The Holy Spirit is beginning to move powerfully. When the angel told Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, that his wife was going to have a baby, he doubted. And he was not allowed to speak until the baby was born. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, an old woman who was past the days of being able to have children by miraculous regenerative power of God. And she becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Mary and impregnates Mary with Jesus Christ. Mary finds out that Elizabeth is pregnant and goes to visit her. And when Mary steps in the room with Elizabeth, John the Baptist, about six months old, in the womb of Elizabeth, jumps for joy. And Elizabeth exclaims the blessedness that Mary was experiencing. And then another three months pass. And the baby, John the Baptist, is about to be born. Zechariah has been silent and cannot speak for nine months. Can you imagine not being able to speak for nine months? We might have better relationships probably. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Hope is back now. Something is happening. Jesus' birth is part of the final stages of God's plan of salvation for his people. Salvation required redemption because the people were in bondage to that which was stronger than them. The people were in bondage to their sin. They were in bondage to Satan. But Jesus is the mighty one, the mighty one, who can deliver his people from their sins. And so, Zechariah is now, we're coming into this place where all of a sudden we're going to see what happens when Zechariah is able to speak. So, I'm going to zip through 57 to 66, explaining the text a little bit, and then we're going to park a little bit and walk through Zechariah's prayer, Zechariah's praise. So, the prophecy of Gabriel the angel has come true. Zechariah and Elizabeth had their baby, John, in old age, just like Abraham and Sarah. This is a really big deal. Word has gotten out. It has spread throughout the hill countries of Judea. And so now a crowd of neighbors and relatives are coming to visit these, this Zechariah and Elizabeth to see the baby and to rejoice with them that God has been merciful to Elizabeth and has removed the disgrace of being childless that existed in those times. And on the eighth day, The priest and others came to circumcise the baby and reminiscent of Abraham receiving his name at circumcision. Because by the way, normally in Israel, they would receive their name first. But this is an odd case. He doesn't receive his name until the baptism. So this is very fascinating what's going on here. So the people are actually saying, oh, look at little baby Zechariah. That's what's going on here. You guys get that, right? They're like, oh, there's baby Zechariah. And Elizabeth is like, no, that's not his name. His name is John. And so she, she had been told, I'm assuming, we all assume, that Zechariah, because it says the writing tablet, probably wrote a bunch of stuff to his wife. Right? And one of those things was, hey, the name of this baby is going to be Yahweh is gracious. John. That's the meaning of John. Yahweh. The I am. The one who has no beginning and no end, who is covenant faithful, is gracious. That 
is the name. And so the people actually disagree with her. You can't do that. You can't name your baby John. There's nobody else in your relatives who are called, called John. You have to name him Zechariah. So they don't even believe the mom. This is kind of the culture at this time. They were, they were kind of had a very bad view of women. Jesus changes that. What we're going to see throughout Luke is how much Jesus draws out the wonder of women and the, their creation and how they are uniquely made in God's image and are not just like secondary. That's what, Jesus, that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Luke. And so what they do is ignore Elizabeth and they turn to Zechariah and say, his name is Zechariah, right? And so Zechariah says he must have done something like this, right? Because it says that he signed to them to get him a writing tablet. So he probably did this. So they hand him a writing tablet. And he writes this final phrase. Like, there's no question. His name is John. No more argument. It doesn't matter what your relatives are called what you're supposed to be called. His name is Yahweh is gracious. So when the people saw this writing, they were astonished. You see, Zechariah didn't want to just keep his namesake. Zechariah wanted to declare God's power and his grace and mercy in sending Jesus Christ, his son. And no sooner did this happen than God gave Zechariah the ability to speak. His mouth was open, and it is no coincidence that he began to speak as soon as he declared his name is John on that tablet. Why? First, it was in alignment with Gabriel's prophecy. You will not speak until the baby's born. Second, he now had actual words of grace and blessing to give. Words about God's redemption through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was coming, and the last great prophet who would prepare the way for that Messiah. Zechariah now shows his faith and trust in God over the traditions and expectations of the people. He didn't care about the traditions and expectations of the people. He was banking on God's grace. He believed the angel Gabriel and obeyed God by naming the baby John. And what was the first thing that came out of his mouth after that? A prophecy, a song, a prayer that parallels Mary's. So remember, we have this whole interesting thing that Luke brought goes on. We have Zechariah, got a prophecy by an angel, didn't listen, doubted it. Mary, who got a prophecy about Jesus, listened and said, whatever you need to do, do it. I'm here. And then Mary sings a song of praise. And now, and remember, she's a commoner. She's a, just a peasant girl who's poor in a no-name town. And the priest who's supposed to be the guy who's, you know, all good, knows all about what God's doing, he got his mouth shut it's because he didn't trust God. And now his trust in God comes forth. And now he's allowed to give the parallel to Mary's praise. So now we have a, a disbelief fixed and now coming out of his mouth, belief. And so, it's rich with promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. God's promises are breaking into time. This is what's happening. God has made all these promises, and now those promises are coming forth and seeing fruition. Some scholars actually say that there are 33 
possible allusions and quotations within these verses. 33. Zechariah is pouring out the promises of God. What God is doing. And so, it starts out with the same praise to God that David gave as his son Solomon was installed as king in his place from 1 Kings 1.48. You know that? The same, as, as, as King Solomon was put on the throne, he starts off, Zechariah starts off with this. And now David's greater son, Jesus, God's son, has come to the earth. And so Zechariah praises God using the same words. You know what he's saying? The king has come. The king has come. The whole song is filled with praise, and it breaks down a little bit like this. Praise God for keeping his promises to David. Praise God for keeping his promises to Abraham. Praise God for giving John. Praise God for the coming of the light of the world and keeping the promises made to Malachi. You see a theme here. God keeps his promises to redeem people from their sin. So I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you today to not look at this as an intellectual exercise where you're gaining information about the Bible. I am asking you to worship Jesus with me right now because that's what Zechariah was doing and that's the reason why Luke wrote this text is for you and me to worship Jesus. And that is why we come and gather on Sunday mornings is to give worship to our King. So worship with me now. First, verses 68 to 71 praising God for keeping his promises to David. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13. This is the, the promise. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you notice verse 69? In the house of his servant David, blessed be the God who has visited and redeemed his people. This is what Zechariah is thinking. The promise given to David is coming into fulfillment with Jesus Christ, the king. And so, what you see in verse 68 there is, what does it mean, though, when, when, when it says that God visited and redeemed his people? What does that mean? Well, this is actually so rich in meaning, and it gives us an opportunity to praise God. So this is like where I'm going to focus. I'm really going to dig into 68 to 71, then, then I'll wrap up the rest of the text. But before we get started, I want you to notice that this song is actually in the prophetic past tense. What does that mean? It is speaking in such a way that what, that what is coming has already happened. This, God does this when he gives his people, his prophets, things. He will speak in the past tense of the things that are about to happen. Because it's so sure. Because he's God. And what God says, it happens. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can thwart God's will. So when God says, this is going to happen, the prophets will speak and say, it's done. And you're like, wait a minute, it hasn't happened yet. And, it, and the answer is, well, if God is on the throne, it has happened, even though it is to come. 
So what we see here, the first thing that we need to really understand, though, is that God has a people. And these are the ones that he came to rescue. Are you one of them? If you don't know whether you're one of those people that God, Jesus came to rescue, then this is an opportunity for you today to be rescued. So he came to rescue his people. He visited and redeemed his people. What we see in this word redemption is that it actually has the meaning of bought back. Basically, they were not his people before. They were prisoners in the house of the strong man. The strong man is Satan. He is stronger than us. And they were prisoners to Satan. But Jesus actually told the scribes and Pharisees, because they accused him of having a demon for the things that he was saying, it says, I have bound the strong man, Beelzebub, and plundered his house. Redemption always comes with a price because redemption is a buying back. Something was ransomed and a price must be paid to get it back. It is as if we were kidnapped and there is a ransom note that is left demanding payment. The major difference here is that we can't blame anyone. We are to blame for our own imprisonment. We willingly sin. We willingly rebel against God. We really willingly do what we want. But God sent Jesus to redeem us back from that. Jesus' mission was to live a perfect life, be brutally killed, and take upon himself our sins. Jesus' life was the payment to buy his people back. Now, I am not saying that somehow God had to pay the devil. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? That's a, that's a bad false doctrine. God had to settle his own wrath because of the rebellion of, of mankind. And so in order for man to enter into the presence of God, a payment, a death need to be made, and that death was Christ. So the ransom was paid to himself, not to Satan. But Satan does have us in captivity. And that's why Jesus said, I bound the strong man, I've taken care of Satan, and I have come, and I have released you. And so, he redeemed for himself a people. So, if you're not one of his people, and you're here today, and you're like, well, what in the world am I supposed to do? All you have to do is repent to turn from your rebellion against God, to recognize that you can't earn God's favor. And trust in Jesus' death for your sake, on your behalf. Believe that he accomplished his task and proved it by rising from the dead. And commit your life to serving him as if he is your master and direction all your life. That is what Arabelle was professing today. So, he kind of had an example. If you don't know Jesus, Arabelle gave you an example today of what you do. If you do this, you will then be one of these redeemed people. So the question is, are you ready, are you willing to give up your control of your life and give your life to Christ and let him guide and govern your life? But now we get into this question of this horn of salvation. 
Now, the scriptures will use this type of language and says, and he has raised up a horn for our salvation. And as Matt mentioned, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. In this particular passage, this is probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 33, 17, where an ox defeats its enemies with its horns. So, So not only can you cut off the horns of an ox and use them to blow a trumpet, but you can also, the ox can also use its horns to gorge its enemies. Historically, this word developed into meaning strength, which is why when they were going on their armies and they were blowing the horn, it was a symbol of their strength, a symbol of their victory, that they were blowing the trumpet and that victory was coming through the strength and through the power of the army. And so when God raises up the horn of salvation, it refers to Jesus' power to save, his power to defeat the enemy, to defeat sin and rescue us with his mighty right arm. A horn in an animal is a weapon for defense and vengeance, but also beauty. The horn of salvation being raised up is a mighty display of power. And what is this power? This power is God with us, Emmanuel. It is God taking on flesh. That is power. The king of the universe stepping into our flesh, living and dying so that you would be rescued. That is Jesus Christ, and that is his power. He is a strong and a mighty Savior. But in verse 71, there is praise given to God for the deliverance or salvation from our enemies. But who are the enemies, and and, and when can we expect this deliverance? Has it happened already? These are questions that should flood through your mind. And I think that there are three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world has reacted in judgment against us for our rebellion against God. You guys know this. Earthquakes, hail, thunder, oceans raging, sun scorching, cold freezing, mosquitoes biting, animals that maim and kill, thorns that tear, poison ivy that creeps all over us, viruses that sicken and kill us, cancer that kills us, and death that chases after us day by day and minute by minute, all in judgment against us for our rebellion against God. The things you see in this world that are evil and terrible are the judgment of our rebellion against God, saying we want to be number one, and God says no, no, I am number one. And the world is thrown into disorder and chaos and pain and it ravages against us and tries to destroy us. Even our own bodies, they, as we get older, they fade. They struggle. We hurt. The whole gravity pushes us down so we actually feel like we're, we shrink. We're actually smaller than we were when we were younger. That's the, what the world does. It pushes us down. It tries to destroy us. It tries to kill us. The flesh is also our enemy. It doesn't want to submit to God. Me, the me inside, inside. I'd rather be in control. Do you feel that way? I mean, if I'm the only one in here that likes to be in control and would like to have the first place in everything, I don't think so. I think we're all like that. And that's the flesh. It's that thing inside of us that says, I, 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 me, 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 mine, mine, mine. That is the flesh. It doesn't care about other people. It just wants to be on top. It doesn't care who gets the promotion. I want the promotion. It doesn't care about anything else. 
You see it all in the world. Rich get richer, 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 richer. And they give little or nothing away. And they see poor walking in the streets next to them. And they don't care. Because as long as I have my Lamborghini, my Ferrari, as long as I have my 10,000 square foot house, I'm fine. While people die on the streets. That's the flesh. The flesh wants all praise and honor and glory. And this enemy doesn't seek to dis- it, it, this enemy doesn't actually seek to destroy us, but it seeks to destroy others. It seeks to raise us up and preserve us at all cost. It doesn't matter about anybody else. Finally, the devil is our enemy. He does not want to submit to God either. All he wanted to do was ruin God's perfect creation, and that's what he did. He doesn't have a hint of mercy. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. And this is the enemy outside who tries to destroy us. We are told that Jesus has tossed his horn of strength and brought salvation to us. But this begs the question about when. When can we expect this deliverance? It doesn't look and feel like that right now, does it? Struggling with relationships? Struggling with your health? Struggling with your mind? Depression, anxiety, fear? Right? You're like, where's Jesus? The answer to this question is really the application of this text that I'm going to get to momentarily. But in the meantime, I want to look briefly at the rest of the song and the prophecy about John and Jesus. So the promise goes further back than David. The promise, the mercy or favor of God was also promised to Abraham. In fact, God made an oath to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his offspring and make them a blessing to the whole world. In fact, kings would come from him. Kings did come from Abraham. David, Solomon, even Saul. But there's one king that came that's greater than all the rest, that sits on the throne today and will reign forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And that is Jesus Christ, the greater son, the greatest son. And so God promises that same deliverance to Abraham and his children from their enemies. And the enemies are the same, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But this promise went deeper than just deliverance. It extended to the way that God's people would live and serve God. You see, you don't have to serve God in terror and dread. That's what this passage is saying. What Jesus came to do is allow you to worship God without fear. Like, (gasps) you can cry out to him, Abba, dearest Father. That's actually the gospel, that God isn't some abstract judge out there who's waiting to drop the other shoe on you. No, he is your father who sent his son to die so that you would have life and you can call to him and say, oh, dearest father, I'm hurting. I need your help. That is why you were saved. That is what Jesus came to do, to make you a child, to destroy the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to let you know that you have that kind of relationship with God. If you've heard anything different than that in Christianity, you're not getting true Christianity. Christianity is that the Father sent the Son out of love for you, and the Son died so that you would be with the Father and be able to cry out, Abba. If you think it's about anything else, about doing stuff, about giving money, about doing all this stuff, you've heard a bunch of lies, you've listened to Satan. Because the true reality of the Gospel is for God so loved the world, Father, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have 
everlasting, unending life. That does not sound like a God that is distant, abstract, and just wants to punish you. Jesus took care so that you could approach God without fear of judgment to be with him forever. But there's fi- the final thing is praising God for John the Baptist and then the sunrise. See, Zechariah then says what John is going to do. He's going to be a prophet of the Most High. Who is the Most High? It is God. It is Jesus. He will be Jesus' prophet. He will go before Jesus' public ministry and tell everybody that it is time to repent for the kingdom of God has come. Jesus the King is here. He will tell people what Jesus is coming to do. That's what John the Baptist's purpose was. That Jesus was coming to bring salvation from sin. Jesus is the forgiver of sin. John would tell them about their sin, about their need for forgiveness, and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the one who came to forgive them, the one who came with a horn of strength to bind the strong man. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, Jesus is. In other words, he is the Lamb that was slaughtered in the place of the people who actually deserve to be slaughtered. Why? Why would God do this? I love this. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God. He cares about the people he has made and wants them to spend eternity with him, drinking from the river of his delights. He loves his creature. He loves you. He made you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him forever. The problem is, is that he can't be with you if you're trying to stand in your own righteousness and goodness, if you're trying to earn your way to him. He can't give that for you. You're going to stand in your own, your own shoes at the end of the day. You're either going to stand before God in Jesus' righteousness or yours. And I, quite frankly, don't want mine. It's terrible. It's like filthy rags. My goodness is like filthy rags. It does not equate to anything. Jesus came to wear these rags for me and for you and give you his precious and holy clothes. Will you agree to this exchange? Do you want Jesus' perfection and righteousness? That's the question for you today if you don't know Jesus. Do you want his righteousness? Do you want his clothes or do you want to wear yours? I don't want mine. I beg of you. I beg, I plead with you today if you do not know Jesus. I beg of you to take the righteousness of Christ. It is yours for the asking, for the taking. Malachi told of this day. Remember what we read? The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Zechariah tells us that the sunrise will visit us. This sunrise will visit us from on high and will give light to those who are in the dark in the shadow of death. The sunrise will show those who are about to be consumed in judgment that there is light. Jesus Christ coming showed that there was light, that we could break out of the darkness, the darkness of our misery, the darkness of being bound by the world, flesh, and devil, and that Jesus Christ is the light and we can follow him in light and delight in him. He is the light of the world, as he said. Light that takes us out of darkness into the light of God. A light that gives life. A light that will guide us into the way of peace. But what is this peace that is offered? The understanding at the time 
of Jesus Christ, when you see in that verse 79 at the very end, that word peace in its Hebrew meaning was this idea of peace or shalom. And of course, the Greek is not that word, but it's the same meaning of the Hebrew word in that time. It is a person's total well-being that results from being in harmony with God. Do you know what this means? See, you know in your heart that things are not right when you do wrong. And you feel it. When you hurt another person, you feel it. You know it. You can lie to yourself all you want. But when you hurt another person, you know your guilt. And you know that you have just violated someone who is incredibly special and beautiful. And when you do that, that judgment sits on you. And Jesus came to bring full well-being and peace so that then when you feel that way before God like you're guilty, that he takes that away and allows you to just experience the joy and delight of being a child of God. Harmony with God. Spiritual prosperity. Wholeness and salvation. It's ultimately reconciliation with God and the comfort of being right with God and, quite frankly, whether they believe it or not, right with others. And this is what Christians have proved year through the centuries. Jesus said, by this, men will know that you're my disciples. People will know you're my disciples. If you have, what? What does it say? You can say it. Love for one another. The characteristic of a Christian is love. If you have no love, you have not Christ. If you live for yourself and you do not love others, you do not know Christ. I'm not making this up. Read 1 John. We are freed from the enemies that hate us. We are enabled to serve God as children and not as slaves. We are made holy and righteous and get to live in God's tender mercy with his light always shining on us. This is the peace that is offered to all those who embrace Jesus Christ and his salvation that he offers. So now, what more is there to do but to bless God, to praise him, and to worship him for all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do in you and in everyone else after you? from time until Jesus comes back. And this is what we see in verse 80. We fast forward a little in the narrative before the birth of Jesus. So so Luke kind of skips ahead for a moment and says, hey, let me give you a sneak peek. Um, John becomes exactly what God said he would be, the the great prophet of the Lord. And so let me give an application of this and then I'll close. So basically... God is blessed or praised because he has visited us in the flesh. Jesus Christ, he is the strong man who has come to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us from all three of these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is ultimately the power of sin over us. Though he has not made the world completely right so that we are no longer attacked by it, he has rolled back the curse of death and judgment demanded by God's perfect justice. And though the world still seeks revenge, Jesus took the wrath and justice that we deserved on himself, and he asks us to fight our way through death like he did. And he promises that he will get us safely to the other side. And so Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus who has given us the victory. You see, Jesus Christ is our horn of strength our redemption. Jesus has made a mighty blow against the flesh. 
He has been buried with Christ. We have, for we have been buried with Christ in his death and we've raised with him in his resurrection. He has put to death the flesh in our mortal bodies and given us the Holy Spirit. And so we, though we have a remnant of sin in us, on the flesh, we battle against it every day. We put the flesh to death. That thing that wants my will more than God's, we put that to death every day as a Christian. We live more and more to Christ, His righteousness, and we die more and more to sin, His flesh. And so thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that He is helping us to put sin to death in our mortal bodies. We are led by the Holy Spirit as children and are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. But, Romans 8 tells us, we must suffer with Him so we might also be glorified with Him. So you want to know why you're suffering? To understand Jesus better. Suffering allows you to understand Jesus better. And when you participate in the sufferings of Christ, his presence is with you. So suffering is a grace gift. It's a gift of the presence of Jesus to you. And so you can serve him in righteousness. But the devil's out to destroy us, his single purpose to ruin everything that God has made. But we don't battle against flesh and blood, Paul tells us, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers and spiritual forces in heavenly places. But we need not fear, for God is with us. The Spirit of Christ lives in us. Jesus has defeated Satan, and he has no absolute power over us anymore. Satan does not have power over you in Christ anymore. You have the Spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ, in you. You can, in Christ, defeat the sin that you're struggling with. The thing that you think you can't beat. That is a lie from the devil to think you cannot defeat that. Will you still sin every day in thought, word, and deed? Yes, but you can have victory over sin that is grasping you, moving in Christ and His power. That's the reality. You are no longer slaves to sin and death, we're told, but servants of the living God. But we can see that we are living in what theologians call the already but not yet. Jesus has brought us deliverance, but there is a final deliverance to come from the world, flesh, and devil. Those all three will be destroyed and remade. The world will be remade perfectly in fire. The flesh will no longer be filled with sin, but made perfectly holy and righteous. We will be spiritual beings with a physical body. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented in punishment forever, and all evildoers will be sent there that are not found in Christ. Jesus will come again, riding on a white horse in the clouds. All will be set right. You see, Jesus has tossed his horn to show his power and might, and will toss it one more time at his return, and all his enemies will be destroyed. He is the mighty God who will bring salvation from sin. Jesus has saved us from sin's penalty. He saved us from sin's power. And one day, we will ultimately be saved from sin's presence. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Because in Jesus Christ, He has visited us to redeem you and me, His people. Father, Oh, we pray that you would allow us to see the beauty and wonder and amazing strength of Christ and how he's defeated sin and death and how he has defeated the world, flesh, and the devil. Would you reign in us, Lord Jesus? Would you reign in this church? Would you live in us in power? You are beautiful. We delight in you, in all that you are, in all that you do. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.